So, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I will uh, begin this afternoon uh, by giving um, some reflections, uh, discourse, and then I would like to invite you to ask any questions you might have either on the subject that I have been talking or on any other subject you would um, like to bring up for discussion and then to, um, to finish the session um, I thought we might have a short period of meditation together so, um, Assuming that's all right with everyone. I, um, I would like you to imagine a situation in which a young man or a young woman goes, makes an appointment with the director of a big hospital and he says to the director or she says to the director I would like to work as a doctor in your hospital and the doctor and the director says Oh yes, where did you graduate? Where did you do your medical training? Did you do it here in Bhutan, uh, in the university? Or did you, have you studied overseas? Um, <clears throat> where did you complete your training? And then the young person says, well, actually, I haven't started my medical training yet. And the director of the hospital, you can imagine, would be a little bit confused and would say, well, um, how, how can you be a doctor? How can you uh, fulfill your duties, responsibilities as a doctor? How can, you, how can you treat other people if you've never even started, let alone finished your medical training? And if I suppose that young person was to say, I am a doctor by birth. My mother and my father were doctors. My grandparents were doctors. All my ancestors were doctors. I'm a doctor by birth. I don't need to train. What do you think the director of the hospital would say? Do you think he would accept that young person as a doctor in their hospital? I think no. Now, you can probably guess that I'm going to draw an analogy here to compare it with some, this case with something else. Um, and the case that, uh, that I would like to compare it with is that of um, those of you maybe, um, those of people in Thailand and in other Buddhist countries uh, who have never really applied themselves to the study and the practice 
of the Buddha's teachings, but they say, I'm a Buddhist. If they have to fill in a form, and where it says religion, they write Buddhist. Maybe it says Buddhist on their passport even, I don't know. But then you say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to say you are a Buddhist? What kind of um, practice do you have as a Buddhist? You say, well, I, I don't really, but my mother and my father are Buddhists, and my grandparents are all Buddhists, and my ancestors are Buddhists. I'm a Buddhist by birth. So um, my assertion here is, that you can't just be a Buddhist um, just because you're born into a Buddhist culture. Um, the Buddhist religion is one which requires us to apply the teachings in our everyday life. Most of the major religions in the world are essentially belief systems. Um, they require us to believe in certain teachings and certain beliefs about things that happened in the past, maybe 2,000 years ago. In Buddhism, uh, we don't give that same importance to faith. Now, the Buddha once said, um, faith is not a true refuge to us. Why is that the case? And the Buddha said it's because it's quite possible and there are so many cases that we can see where people have an absolute, unquestioning, 100% faith in things which are not true. So uh, there are enough examples out there for you uh, you to see for yourself uh, that that is uh, accurate uh, criticism. So if it is possible for human beings to believe absolutely in something which is not true, then therefore faith and belief cannot be a true refuge in our life because Perhaps we also are believing in things which are not true. So the Buddha said that faith has a role to play in religious life. But it is a role which must always be governed by the highest virtue, which is wisdom. Faith and wisdom must be balanced. So without wisdom, without using our intelligence and our critical faculty, faith can very easily become fanaticism or superstition. Faith is protected by wisdom. And wisdom in uh, early stages means willing to doubt. Now in the religions that make faith the number one virtue, doubt is the enemy. But in the Buddhism, which is wisdom tradition, 
doubt under certain circumstances is a friend because it reminds you that you don't really know so there are certain teachings of the Buddha which we cannot prove for ourselves right now and we as Buddhists can believe in those teachings there's no problem about that but always we have the voice of wisdom in our minds reminding us that believing is not knowing believing something and knowing something are two different things so uh, we try to verify the teachings of the Buddha in our own experience by learning from our life so the teachings of Buddhism are not so um, uh, subtle and profound and esoteric that uh, we don't have the capacity to put them to the test to begin with um, the Buddha is pointing out some very simple truths that um, nobody I'm sure would contradict or would um, argue against but which have profound implications for our life one of them the central truth of all life is that everything changes but the fact that everything changes um, is not enough to or the recognition of that is not enough um, to produce wisdom what we have to uh, understand and see clearly is that everything changes according to causes and conditions everything outside of ourselves everything inside is one and the same process now um, let's say um, you had um, some something let's say um, a, a, a telephone or let's say this watch and it went wrong now if your watch went wrong how many of you would say oh this is because of something that happened in past life uh, therefore I must just accept it or how many people would say God is punishing me I should just accept it I don't think so I think with the things that we use in our daily life we say oh something's gone wrong with my watch I wonder what's wrong and you try to find a way to fix it and maybe if you don't have the knowledge maybe you take it to a shop and you have someone who knows more than you help you to fix it so I would say I don't know anybody even the very um, the fundamental Christian or fundamental Muslim or someone who has so much faith in their religion when their watch goes wrong they don't just sit there and put it in front of them and pray to God please God make my watch um, go again because we know it doesn't work we know that in the real world in the, that if something goes wrong there's a cause 
and we try to find what is the cause of what's gone wrong and what can we do about it. Sometimes when we find that the cause um, is such that we can do something about it very easily. Sometimes it's more difficult. Sometimes we can't do anything about it. And that's a useful knowledge, isn't it? Because um, if something is um, not working and we can't do anything about it, then if we just try um, to, to um, uh, repair it, we'll be just wasting time and effort. So we can focus our efforts on those things that we can repair. So understanding um, the way that we generally deal with things that are a problem externally, we notice that many people, when they come to internal, into their mind and their heart, they adopt a completely different strategy. They don't say, um, oh, there's something wrong, what is the cause of what's gone wrong, what can I do about it? No, they go, they pray, and they make offerings, or they uh, just try to forget the problem by getting drunk or taking drugs or some other escape. Um, or people just become very depressed and, and, and uh, upset. So, um, can you see that problems in our, we have two kinds of problems in our lives, external problems, problems with material things that go wrong, problems in the society, problems in, with economics and with the nat natural world, so many problems. But all of us, whatever religion that we profess, when we have problems externally, almost everyone agrees on the method. The method of dealing with external problems is what is the problem, what is the, what is the cause, the condition, what can we do about it? What do we do first? What do we do later? What's uh, urgent? What can be uh, put um, to a later period? And so on. And as human beings, over the past thousands of years, we've become very good at this. We're pretty good at dealing with, with problems. Now, if a problem occurs in a, in a company, the company used to make a lot of money, now it's not making a lot of money, you have someone come in, and what's, what are the reasons, what can be done about this, for instance. But, isn't it strange that we only use this, this method, which is so successful, generally speaking, for things outside, but we don't use it for things inside. So uh, this is where um, the Buddha and the Buddhist teachings have a lot to offer. Because the Buddha is saying, you use exactly the same approach, the same strategy. Now what are the internal problems? We get frustrated, uh, we get angry and upset, and uh, we get uh, greedy we get obsessed with things, we get addicted to things. We have so many ups and downs in our life. And the Buddha said, we, now we need to really look at these two major areas of our life. is the, the fundamental 
um, issues in everybody's life and, are, and they are suffering and happiness and how little we study these things now even uh, in a very um, we can say an enlightened country like Bhutan which has adopted GNH gross national happiness um, as the goal of development wonderful idea and wonderful thing but um, if we don't individually and as communities study understand the nature of happiness and the nature of suffering it will never really um, work very well I don't think now when we uh, turn our attention inside there's a lot of resistance it, it, it's very difficult to do it to begin with because so much um, in our life pulls us outside makes us interested in things outside of ourselves and so um, you know, people become uh, obsessed even with the news have to watch the news and listen to the news all the time and so what happened uh, last week in Libya or what happened last week um, in uh, in Europe or America and some people can give quite good answers or what happened uh, in uh, uh, in the parliament or something they know and they say well, what happened in your mind what happened in your heart yesterday <laughs> and nobody can answer it's funny I mean that we uh, the most uh, important things we, we, we just haven't really observed and noticed and that's why we have some very contradictory and uh, conflicting ideas about life which we've never really observed and noticed now I was um, trained I, um, I was born in England and lived 17 more than 17 years in England and then I left England and um, I had always a very strong pull to Asia since I was a boy and I never thought that I would spend my life in England and in that culture and society and so I, I saved some money, I worked for a while um, and saved some money and then I went from England to India um, but I wanted some adventure and some excitement and to learn as much as I could and so I went overland from England to India um, sometimes I caught buses or trains uh, sometimes I walked but the most um, common method I used was hitchhiking which meant I would stand by the side of the road and put my thumb out like this and then hope somebody would give me a lift and quite often they would uh, often because people on long journeys traveling themselves they get sleepy or bored um, and then they have a companion to talk to 
And so I met people from many different countries and I had many adventures and sometimes uh, it's in quite dangerous situations. Um, but I, I got to India and I hitchhiked through India and traveled on trucks, uh, sometimes on the roof of trucks, um, all around India and Nepal. Um, and I was away for altogether and I spent a number of months in Iran uh, teaching to make some more money because I ran out of money. And um, I, re I returned to England after two years. And my parents and my school teachers were expecting that I would go to university then. Um, and I said I didn't want to go to university, uh, that I just wanted to study and practice Buddhism, but at that time I wasn't quite sure how to go about that or where. Fortunately, um, I, um, I, I went on a meditation course with an English teacher who had been a monk in Thailand for six or seven years. Uh, before leaving the monkhood and returning to teach Buddhism in England. And he would tell stories about the time he was a monk. And that's when I realized that this is what I've been looking for for the past two years. And um, this is the way of life which um, I would find most fulfilling. And so um, I, in, in November of 1978, like 33 years ago this month, um, I traveled to Thailand and I made a determination that I was going to stay not less than five years, no matter what happened. So you can imagine, I was only 20 years old and I got off the plane in Bangkok I didn't know anybody, uh, I couldn't speak Thai language, and I took just a few dollars with me. I didn't want to have any money because I was afraid if something, uh, I had difficulties or it got tough, I might be tempted to go back to England. So I thought, just to avoid that problem, I won't have enough money to go back. And I determined that I'm going to stay for five years, um, no matter how, uh, whether I like it or I don't like it, um, whether it feels a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, I will reserve my judgment for five years until I have sufficient experience to decide whether, in fact, um, I am... Uh, that the monk's life would be the best life for me. And uh, I was, uh, again, very fortunate that um, I went to stay in the jungle, in the forest, in the northeast of Thailand, in a quite a um, backward, remote area of the country, and to meet a, a very great teacher and to become his student. And in fact, from the moment I met my teacher, I, I never um, considered leaving ever again. And now I've been in Thailand for 33 years, as I said. Now my teacher, 
he didn't speak any English, um, and uh, as I say, I didn't speak any Thai language to begin with, and there were more and more um, uh, young men like myself from all over the world um, who were gradually converging in this forest um, with this teacher at that time. And I had friends from Germany and uh, Sweden and Israel and Australia and New Zealand and America and Canada and Mexico and South Africa and so many countries. Uh, young people uh, looking uh, towards Buddhism and wanting to become Buddhist monks. And there was uh, one occasion um, in which a Thai person came to the monastery and he saw all the monks from different countries and he was uh, surprised and confused and he said to my teacher, Ajahn Chah, he said, uh, all these monks from different countries and they don't speak Thai um, yet, how do you teach them? Um, how is it possible? Um, he said, do you, do you speak their languages? Do you speak um, English or German or Japanese or and and Ajahn Chah my teacher said no 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 he said well how, how do they study how do they learn um, and um, so my teacher said to them uh, to this man in your in your farm do you have any buffaloes and he said yes venerable sir do you have any cats yet yeah, adults and said yes um, and do you have any uh, chicken? He said, yeah. And he said, do you speak the buffalo language? And he said, no. He said, do you speak the chicken language? He said, no. He said, do you speak dog language? And, well, how, how do they all stay and live with you? So uh, my teacher said, the teaching the Westerner is not difficult. It's like the buffalo. You just have the rope and you just pull him this way and you pull him that way and and before long he picks up what he has to do. So it was a, a teaching that um, the, the language was not so important. What was important was the strong confidence that this is a training and a teaching which works. And to see the teacher as a proof um, that um, this teaching not just for uh, monks in the time of the Buddha, but just ordinary people like us when we uh, train in the proper way and practice over a number of years, then we can see some, some real results. Now my teacher, he had a lot of knowledge of the, the scriptures and the, the ancient teachings, but the way he taught was a very direct way. And um, when I was first there, we, uh, those, at that time there was a lot of hard work in the monastery and um, our life was quite a tough life because uh, we would get up in the morning just before 3 a.m. and then we would have the morning service with chanting and meditation until 5 a.m. and then we would do some cleaning 
and then at about 5.30 everyone would walk uh, with their bowls out into the surrounding villages um, to receive the offering of rice uh, and food. Now because uh, the monks in time we can't cook our own food and, we're, and we um, depend upon the generosity of the lay people and the monks in the forest like myself we also uh, cannot touch money so we have no independence um, and we can't just buy things if we oh today nobody gave us any good food on uh, in the village let's go down to the supermarket and buy some noodles we can't do that um, because we can only take what's what's given to us on that day and we can't store food uh, from one day to another day only we can eat what's offered and whatever's left over we share with the lay Buddhists with the local people so um, we walk and sometimes it's five kilometer walk or six kilometer walk something like that and it's an hour two hours um, then we come back and meditate and then we would have our daily meal at about 8 a.m. And we would only eat one day, uh, one meal a day. Um, that, so when you finish your meal, uh, half past eight or whatever, that's it until tomorrow morning. Nothing, nothing more. And then um, during the day, at that, at that year, we were working like hard physical labor um, in uh, making a wall and carrying rocks and doing like hard labor. And so, and from maybe 10, 11 o'clock in the morning till 7, 8 o'clock at night, um, even later. And you can imagine it's quite tiring um, to be working hard and only eating one time every day. And every now and again, um, in the cold season, uh, it's not cold like Bhutan, but it feels quite cold, uh, we have a special treat. We would have a, a like a hot drink in the afternoon, hot sweet drink, and of course everybody would like this very much. And um, I remember one day we were all working, and uh, our teacher was standing there directing the work. And then we heard this sound, and you could hear this sound from a long way away because it was a very important sound. This is the sound of kettles clanking like someone carrying these big kettles of sweet drinks and clank, clank, clank as they walk along and your ear is so sensitive to this sound you know, even though in the forest there's a sound of birds and insects and people but that sound you know straight away this is hot drink kettle sound and you're very happy to hear that sound um, especially because you're cold and it's hot. Just to have a hot drink is so pleasant when it's cold, isn't it? And so that day, um, the novice um, brought these kettles and a teacher said, just put them down there on the ground. And so suddenly, a whole attitude to work changed, you know, from being quite uh, mindful and interested in the work. Suddenly, every minute seemed like an hour. All everything slowed down because you're thinking we are about to stop when can we stop now we're going to have a drink 
And the more you thought about the drink, then the more your imagination works and the more delicious you think it's going to be. And, uh, and then after a while, you, why hasn't he told them to stop? You know? and, and then you start to think, oh, now the drink is starting to cool down because uh, it's not going to be so hot as it was. Never mind, still quite hot. And, and this went on for uh, well over an hour like an hour and a half even, I think. Um, and then my teacher suddenly said, Oh, please, have a rest. Um, have the hot drink. And when he, when he said the word hot, you know, with this very bad feeling because he knew it wasn't hot anymore. Um, and, and he would have this little smile on his face because we knew it was completely deliberate. You know, he didn't really forget. And this was how he would teach. He would teach us like this, just with uh, small events in our daily life. Now, if we look in the Buddhist textbook, Buddhist textbook says the Four Noble Truths, there is suffering because of craving, and the end of suffering with the end of craving through the practice of the Eightfold Path. And, okay, we've all... Uh, we read this and we study and we can remember it, but it doesn't really penetrate, it doesn't become real until we have some experience like this, because we, oh yes, this is what he's teaching, like, why, why am I suffering so much, you know? Um, if, for instance, like the day before, there was no drink that day at all, and we knew right from the beginning, today no drink, don't think about it, it's no suffering. But the moment they hear the clank, clank, clank of the kettle, and you think, oh, I'm good. And you actually feel in your stomach, you know, this is good, 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 you know, it's like your stomach's just getting ready to welcome the hot drink, you know. Um, and then, the, as I say, uh, you begin to see what, you know, clocks are, and, and watches, they lie. You know, in a, in a watch time, a clock time, uh, one minute is always 60 seconds, one hour is 60 minutes, and it's exactly the same. But in your feeling, it's not. When you really want something, every minute uh, before you get that, it just seems so slow, doesn't it? Or when you're really enjoying something, how could, oh, it's a whole hour's gone by, where did that time go? So our experience of time is not the same as clock time. And we see that, and the effect that desire and craving has, and how, um, where as long as we really want something, and we feel we can't be happy until we have that one thing, um, then we suffer. So, um, after that, I learned my lesson, you see. And in future time, when there was a drink came, I just made this determination of my mind. If I have a drink, it's okay. If I don't have a drink, it's okay. Never mind. And I didn't, it was all right after that, because I didn't have the, uh, even though I was cold and hungry and would like a drink, but because I didn't feel I have a, a right to have the drink, or that I was waiting, when can I have a drink? Why doesn't he tell us to stop? It's not fair. All those thoughts in my mind, I cut them off. I said, don't think that way. You don't have to think that way. I think if you have a drink, it's wonderful. It's very kind of someone to make a drink. If you don't, it's all right. So this is um, uh, the way that when I was a young monk, 
that the, the teachings that I remember the most uh, didn't come from Tama talks like this and discourses because to begin with I couldn't understand the language very well at all um, but they came from uh, these daily experiences and I'm saying is our education um, when, when do we become educated? When does education take place? What is education? No? And uh, I think we need to open up our idea of what education actually is. Um, it's not just the, um, the absorption of information and intellectual skills, um, but also, very importantly, uh, we need to be developing life skills. Now, um, if we consider intelligence or the intellect as something separate from the other parts of our life, I think we make a big mistake. And um, let me give another example from a, um, a simple truth about life. Now this simple truth is that one day we are going to be separated from everything and everyone that we love. Now nobody really likes to think about that. It's not something that you would just sort of lay back in your armchair and just let me think about all the, all the separation that's going to take place in my life because um, it can be, make you feel sad. Um, but even so, we have to acknowledge, yes, everybody who has ever been born in this world has either died in the past or will die. Every single one of us here, we can say, without exception, is going to die one day. Is that true? Yes. Absolutely. And uh, sooner or later, everyone we love will die. Uh, our mother was going to die, our father is going to die, brothers, sisters, when we get up, uh, when we get older, um, children, sometimes even children, will die before the parents, which is the most awful thing that can happen. But if we talk about this as a general principle, everyone can just nod their head, yeah, that's, that's true, yes, that's, that's true. But when it actually happens, it's something else completely again, isn't it? It doesn't, um, that intellectual knowledge, um, it just doesn't, hasn't helped us in any way at all. And we feel like we've never been told that before, ever. It's just, yes, that's true for people generally and for human, the human race generally, but somehow we thought we were kind of an exception. And so, um, the Buddha said that our intellectual understanding, if it is not based upon a foundation of emotional understanding and a real um, integration of the truth of life into the way we experience ourselves and the way we live in inner life, then it has very little value. Now when the strong emotion um, 
takes over our mind, our thinking, our intelligence or an IQ disappears, goes out the window. We become very rigid and the mind just falls into the rut. We can see if you're very afraid, have you ever been really afraid of something? You notice when you're really afraid you can't analyze, you can't think, you can't plan, you can't do, you, you're afraid that someone's going to kill you or, or something terrible is going to happen to your family or, your, or to yourself. All your thinking just freezes, doesn't it? And it's the same also when you really, really want something very badly. Um, notice that even if you are very smart and very intelligent, top of your class even, when you really, really want something, um, you don't think very well. You, have you seen that's the case? And if you study history, then you will see over and over again very, very, very smart people doing very, very stupid things. Now, why is that? In recent uh, history, um, one of the smartest, most intelligent people to hold public office in the Western world was uh, President Clinton. In fact, uh, President Reagan um, had Alzheimer's for um, a period that he was president. And uh, President Reagan, you may not know, um, he and he, uh, his wife were um, very devoted to astrology. Um, and they would always ask an astrologer before they made an important decision. So you may think astrology is only something that occurs in this part of the world. So we had a president who um, uh, developed Alzheimer's while he was a president, and he, um, he was, uh, made important decisions based on astrology, uh, and he's generally considered a quite a successful president by, by many people. Anyway, one of the um, smart presidents was Mr. Clinton. And um, people would, would um, say, he's incredible, you could, uh, you could give him a book, like a thick book in the morning, quite a technical book, and in the evening he could discuss that book with you. He read it and he'd managed to extract all the most important points and was able to, uh, to talk about them and to analyze them. Quite incredible um, intelligence. But then during uh, during his time as a president, he did a very stupid thing. Um, he was married and he had an affair with a young woman um, who was one of his assistants. Um, and he uh, destroyed his reputation and uh, caused great problems um, in the political uh, world and for his country um, simply because when he had a very strong sexual desire, um, he just stopped thinking. So all that uh, incredible intelligence, he just kind of just put it to one side, just forgot about it. Um, it didn't function in that area of his life because a strong emotion um, took over. When people are very angry, it's the same. People don't act in a reasonable and rational way when they're angry, do they? When you just want to get back or you want to have um, revenge on somebody, you know? 
and uh, people do terrible and stupid things and they go to prison for them um, because they just want to get back and, and have their revenge. So these are just a couple of examples um, which show that the, uh, the development of your in, uh, intellect is not separate from the other parts of your life. Some uh, children, adolescent children, um, they have a very lonely life at home. Perhaps they only have one parent, or perhaps their parents um, don't give them uh, so much attention, and then they become uh, very uh, attached to their friends. And the thing that they fear more than anything else is to be rejected by their friends. And then maybe, if they're unfortunate, their friends uh, like to drink or to take drugs. And so this child might be very intelligent and he would know that drinking alcohol is very harmful, smoking is harmful, taking drugs is harmful. But then when they have to uh, make a choice between doing something which is very stupid and harmful or losing their friend, then they say, um, I want to keep my friends. So you can uh, find very intelligent children uh, who make very poor decisions and become addicted uh, to drugs. Um, another example is someone who very, very uh, anxious and worried all the time, thinks so much, just thinking, thinking all the time, and very good at the studies. But when it comes time for the big test, then what happens? So anxious, they can't sleep, I'm just worried. What happens if I don't pass my test? My mother and my father will be so upset and so disappointed. Um, and just think, and, and that worry and anxiety is the very thing that stops them doing well on the test. They have all the knowledge in their brain, but they can't access the knowledge because the emotion takes over. So this is why in uh, an education uh, system to be really successful, uh, we have to be learning how to deal uh, with uh, all the problems that arise in our lives and all the things that can give rise to these strong emotions. So there are four kinds of effort that we need to make. First effort is to develop strategies and to apply them to preventing the negative emotions from taking over our mind. Secondly, we have to have the, um, to make the effort to deal with, to reduce and eliminate the negative emotions that already taken over our mind. If you already have a bad temper or you already get very jealous when someone else does better than you do or you're already uh, very uh, worried and, and can't sleep because you worry about the future and all these things we have to find some means to deal with these things. Um, then all the good qualities that you don't have and you, you see in other people or you'd like to uh, emulate. 
how can you bring those things into your mind and develop them and the good things that they're already how can you take care of them and develop them further so these are the four kinds of effort which will lead to happiness in life and will lead to um, a rounded education now what are the tools there are many tools to be used um, but one which I would like to single out uh, today is we call mindfulness and mindfulness uh, means that we can be awake and aware um, in the present moment in our lives you might think well uh, if we're not fast asleep we're already awake and aware but no we're not often we live in a kind of a dream state we're just thinking about the past or thinking about the future or maybe the young man or the boy is thinking about the girl and the girl is thinking about the boy um, and the teacher is uh, speaking you realize 10 minutes have passed 15 minutes have passed you didn't hear one word because you're thinking about that boy or thinking about that girl um, so uh, it means we're not really um, present with our, our task in the present moment we're in a dream world and um, it's quite shocking how much of our life we spend in a dream world rather than in the real world and if you don't believe me uh, you can try just to try to be in the present moment and to, oh, it's very very difficult much more difficult than you would think because the habit of just thinking this thinking that memorizing fantasizing it's so strong and so the first principle of mental hygiene um, is uh, to be able to be present um, in the many years ago the um, simple uh, presentation this idea was be here now that's quite easy to remember be here now so if your body's here but your mind's off somewhere else and you're thinking after school I'm going to go and uh, play football or uh, go and play sport or I'm going to go and uh, visit with my friends or something then you're not you're here maybe but you're not here now you're here only in your body um, so you have to be here body and spirit body and mind and that's a, a skill um, that we need to develop now the um, a, a phrase again I'll share, share with you is that um, we say if you're here now and you're awake and aware you're mindful if you're just dreaming and daydreaming and thinking of the past and future and the other things then you'll be, you're unmindful you're not mindful and um, our teachers say if you're not mindful you have very few choices if you are mindful you have many choices now what that means is if you're uh, kind of uh, drifting and thinking it's like an airplane you're just on automatic pilot you know there's um, no real intelligence at work 
And when something happens unexpectedly or something, then you tend to just react in the old ways, just in a very um, uh, conditioned, automatic way, just like you're a puppet or a robot. Mm. And you become very predictable. Mm. But if you are awake and aware in the present moment, your mind is very sharp and flexible. And your ability to analyze and say, is this right, is this wrong, is this useful or not useful? Um, all these kinds of wise thoughts arise because you are in the present moment. So the Buddha says that wisdom, we all have this wisdom faculty. But because we're, our minds are just drifting, we, we don't really, we're not really able to use that. So when the mind is uh, sharp and aware and present, then the useful and um, insightful thoughts arise. And you can act in very creative ways. This is where creativity really takes place where you're not just looking at things in the same old tired way. You're not just reacting, just saying the things you always said and thought the things you always thought, just going round and round and round and round. But the mind becomes fresh and you can see things in a fresh way um, because you are awake and aware in the present moment. And the, the mind which is Awaken is a very powerful mind um, and is, if you can use the energy that appears um, when you put down all your usual distractions, uh, you can find you have an instrument like a laser beam. It's so strong and so powerful. So if you, if you imagine a um, uh, a light source with very many um, little holes where the light is just dissipating and just disappearing into the atmosphere um, but then you make a, um, uh, an efficient kind of vessel for that light and focus that light um, then uh, it's amazing or maybe some of you have got a magnifying glass before um, and you hold it in a magnifying glass focusing the rays of the sun and then you can burn paper, or, you know, when I was a schoolboy, things like this, you burn paper, and, and uh, incredible, the, the sun's there, and you maybe just feel not very warm on your skin, but with the magnifying glass, and you focus the sun's rays, it'll be so powerful it can burn things. And the mind is such a powerful instrument, um, but we don't know how to focus the power of the mind. We just let the mind just wander off here and wander off there, um, and it's such a shame, you know, that you have this capacity, you have this potential in your mind that you're not really making use of. So, um, to begin with, we need to develop the power to sustain our attention, to increase the attention span. Now, this is one of the things which uh, your generation, and imagine we differ very much from people um, 
in the old days, or even people, country people these days in Bhutan or even in Thailand. When I was first in Thailand, the, we would have the um, once a week, we would not sleep. Everyone would stay up and meditate all through the night. And many of the local village people would come and join in with the monks. And we give the, um, the Dhamma talks late at night. And, um, and sometimes in, uh, in some special occasions, there would be monks come from other monasteries. Even today we do this. And they from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m., monks will be giving the Dhamma, the, the discourses. Maybe each monk will talk for half an hour or one hour right through the night. And I was so amazed that the old people, uh, village people, could sit just very straight and listen uh, to one talk after another for all, for hours and hours and hours. They have very strong uh, attention span, very long attention span. But these days, um, the technology and uh, the environment is encouraging us for our attention span to become shorter. So you can see this with uh, like internet. Like when internet first came, you know, you, you, know you, you try to connect with the website and then after a few seconds or maybe a lot of seconds, then a website comes up and then you want to, uh, you click something and you have to wait for another period. But then because that was all um, that you had in those days, you think, wow, it's incredible, just a few seconds or 30 seconds and you can access all this information. It's incredible. But then the, uh, the development, now we have like high-speed Wi-Fi, you know, and if, you, if you've been using high-speed Wi-Fi and you go to a, a, like a low-speed phone connection, you know, oh, come on, come on, why is it so slow? You know, you get so impatient because you're used to everything, just you just press, you click, and then it comes immediately. Um, and you can see if, if you live in your life with computers where there's instant response, you know, you, you, you click this and that happens immediately, you'd be after a while, you just be, expect it. Um, but in real life, you know, you, you can't expect other people uh, to respond in the same way or, the, or situations and there's a lot of frustration and, and people don't want to, uh, to stay with something and be patient with something because uh, we, we often think now that patience is just for like the, the past. Like if we're, uh, we're modern people, we don't have to be patient anymore. Everything has to be instantaneous, immediate gratification. This is very dangerous for our mental health. And so to counter that and to try to um, revive these good habits and the ability to be present, then we need the mindfulness um, practice. Um, and the meditation practices are aimed at, to begin with, to strengthen and to lengthen attention span so that we can be awake even when there's something there's not really anything very exciting happening like if you're watching a, 
a movie, an action movie, with lots of car chases and shootings and uh, all these things, you don't have to make any effort to be awake, do you? It just uh, pulls you along with it. Um, so it's easy to be awake when you're being stimulated. But can you be awake when there's no stimulation? This is, a, um, as they say, a really important life skill that we develop through meditation. So we concentrate on something which is not exciting. For instance, the breath. We're all breathing all the time, breathing in and breathing out. And we don't notice unless maybe we're climbing up a mountain or we're short of breath. And we say, oh, it's difficult to breathe. Or we have a cold and we can't breathe very well through our nose. And then we, say, then we notice our breathing. But generally we don't. Why should we? But the Buddha said, this is, you know, is precisely a good thing to concentrate on because it's bland, it's uninteresting, it's nothing, it's normal. But being able to be awake and aware and sensitive to something which is really normal over a long period of time gives your mind incredible strength. Um, and one of the first things that uh, you notice is you don't get bored very easily because if you can be mindful and awake of just uh, breathing in and breathing out then in your daily life um, you know the, uh, there's always a little bit more than that going on um, and you you don't find your mind so restless and so uh, hungry for um, stimulation as you did that's just one of the very first results of meditation. Okay, so I've um, been speaking for quite a long time already. You've been very patient and uh, listening uh, to me. And um, so to give us enough time for the questions and answers and for the meditation period, maybe I'll, I'll leave uh, my talk um, at this point. And, um, and now, like to invite anyone who has anything to say or to ask about anything at all. Don't be shy. Step up and who's the brave person will be the first one. It's easy to be number two or number three, but who's who's going to be the brave person? Be the first one to stand up and ask a question.
Yes. You have to speak, speak up, speak very loudly. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear very clearly. Could you could you come a bit closer? Do we have, do we have another microphone? Do we have a second microphone? Please be quiet so I can hear. Realize that God is in our self, then why do we need to preach the statues and all? So, why do we have to preach the statues and why do we have to preach? Why do we have to about statues? Okay, yes, I, okay, I understand the question. Thank you. Um, so the question was, if uh, if God or whatever is in our hearts, then uh, why do we need to pay respects to statues and bow to statues and, and so on? Um, I, I myself, um, you know, as a as a Buddhist monk, um, uh, don't don't think about things in terms of, of God. I I, I don't uh, really understand that word very well, um, but. Um, if we, if I could maybe say use the word that the truth of things and um, reality or whatever is within us, um, then why do we need all these images and statues and all these things? Well, when the when the Buddha was alive. And people would have so much reverence for the Buddha that they would want to go to pay respects to him. But sometimes they would go to the monastery um, and he wasn't there. And they'd be very disappointed. And, and so they would go to his cottage. Um, and at least it was the place where he lived. And because they have so much sort of love and devotion that they just want to express this physically. So they would bow to uh, his cottage. Um, and then Venerable Ananda, who was his, um, uh, his attendant, uh, was speaking about the Buddha, to the Buddha about this. And the Buddha said, um, I was enlightened underneath the Bodhi tree in Gaya. And so the Bodhi tree is the symbol of enlightenment. So tell people that if they want to come and pay respects, um, then come and, and bow to the Bodhi tree as a representative of the Buddha, as a symbol of the Buddha and the Buddha's enlightenment. So that became a custom. And it's a custom that is still followed to this day in Sri Lanka. Now, in northwestern India, in the area today which um, is covered by Afghanistan um, and Pakistan, um, there there was a meeting between the Indian peoples 
and the Greek people. And the Greeks love statues. And so after the Buddha had passed away, then um, there became, a, a, there developed in that part of the Buddhist world, in the border between the Indian uh, peoples and the Greek people, an idea to copy the Greek um, statue making, but to adapt it for the Buddhist use. And the idea was that the Buddha represents things that we can't see with our eyes. And those things are wisdom and compassion and peace. And so when we bow to the Buddha, or when we think of the Buddha, we are more than anything else thinking of those qualities because those are the things that made the Buddha the Buddha. His wisdom, his compassion, his peace. But if we close our eyes, for most people, you say, close your eyes and think of wisdom and think of peace. And you can't. If, um, maybe if you uh, are meditating a lot, maybe it's easier. But for most people, it's too difficult. And so the, the wise monks and teachers of those days said, what if we create a form that you can see with your eyes? make it out of clay, or out of wood, or out of stone, or out of metal, and something which through its beauty, and its stillness, um, and, its, um, uh, and its form, helps you to remember those qualities of the Buddha. And that, so that was the idea, that we have Buddha images. So when you bow, it's not like you're bowing to metal, or you're bowing to wood, or you're bowing to, um, uh, to clay, but you're bowing to those things that that form of wood and clay and, and bronze symbolize. So it's true, of course, that um, many Buddhists don't, um, uh, have not been educated correctly. They don't understand, and that they can just be bowing to um, material objects. But that was not, that's not the intention, and that's not the function um, of the, the great image. They are meant to bring up the, the positive emotion, to, to give rise to, uh, to rapture and faith, and, and, um, and to remind us of our values as Buddhists. It's very easy in a modern world to forget our values. But if you have a... Buddha images, then you look and you see that very big Buddha image on the top of the mountain. You look up there and you can just remember, oh yes, my, what are my values? My values are wisdom and compassion and peace and kindness and so on. So they're ways of reminding you um, of your or as a Buddhist. So um, I, I've compared this criticism of people um, bowing uh, to um, to uh, a form of bronze or, or wood and clay and so on. He said, let's compare it with someone watching a television. So he said, look, what's, all you're really seeing on television are like little dots of light and different colors, electrical impulses, 
You know, there's nobody in the tele. There's not anybody really in that television. There's no actor. There's no singer. There's no. There's nobody in there. You're just seeing l- patterns of light and sound. But well, why are you laughing and and enjoying so much? Isn't that superstitious? Um, he said, "Well, no, because." Um, we understand that this is a, a symbol and it's a representation of something real, uh, which can, we can uh, derive benefit from or enjoyment from. So if someone was to say, you're being superstitious because you're just looking at a box with patterns of light on it for hours a day, uh, you'd probably think it would be a very, wouldn't be a very fair uh, criticism. And for uh, a wise person, then the the Buddha images can, they don't necessarily have to be, but they can be very useful tools um, in our lives as Buddhists. also born in India, but why there is difference between the Buddhism and the Hindu religion? The, um, well, this is um, a subject of some controversy, so I'll give my, my personal understanding that, um, in fact, at the time of the Buddha, there was not anything which we would call Hinduism. Now, there was a, a Brahmanist, Brahmin religion, um, and which was the, the kind of the main religious tradition. And then you had many um, called uh, Samana religions, or uh, religions that had very many different philosophies, theories. And so at the time of the Buddha, it was the most advanced, uh, sophisticated period of religious um, development in in human history. So many different um, teachings and philosophies and religions. Um, Now, the Buddha was born into the Brahmin system and religion, but he was one of those um, uh, seekers for truth who rejected that system. He, he, he stepped out of the caste system. And his uh, monastic order, the Sangha, when they became monks, then they gave up their caste identity. They were no longer Brahmins or Kshatriyas or, or Sudras or whatever. They were Buddhist, Buddhist monks. Um, so, uh, 
in many of the Brahmin teachings that did not conflict with the Buddhist uh, Buddhist enlightenment, he would praise um, and refer to. Um, but certain aspects of the Hindu or the Brahmin tradition, the Buddha didn't agree with, and most uh, importantly, the caste system. Uh, the Buddha said that you're not a superior person because you were born in this caste or that caste. You are a superior person or an inferior person because of your actions. So if you're born in a, a Brahmin caste, uh, it's considered the highest caste, but you, uh, you act unkindly, you hurt other people, you steal, you lie, you commit adultery and so on, um, then you are not a superior person. If you were born into a very low caste, you might be a, a sweeper or a toilet cleaner, but you're someone who is uh, kind and considerate and honest and so on, then you're a superior person. So this is a rejection of the caste system which was a um, very uh, central part of Buddhist teaching at that time. Now, um, Buddhism um, spread um, throughout northern India and then with the arising of Mahayana Buddhism, uh, it, it spread a great deal and the, um, the Brahmins uh, felt threatened by this and there was uh, on many occasions uh, Brahmin kings who would oppress Buddhists um, and kill monks and so on um, although generally they got on reasonably well but then um, some many hundreds of years later a great sage rose in southern India called Shankaracharya and Shankaracharya um, was the person who was able to um, to forge a new kind of Brahminism um, in which he adopted um, some of the most popular of the Buddhist teachings Mahayana, for instance vegetarianism this was not um, a Brahmin tradition um, but it became identified with what we know as, as Hinduism and uh, some of the um, other Buddhist teachings and so there was a revival of the uh, the Hindu or the Brahmin the you see Hindu really means Indian it's not a, like a, a particular teaching it's an umbrella term it covers many many different uh, uh, gods and goddesses and, and uh, practices and beliefs. So we can say basically Hindu is the is, uh, uh, Indian religion and it's unified by the um, adherence to caste system. Um, and within the, the Hindu tradition there are some um, sects and some which are very close to Buddhism and some which are very different. Um, so it's very difficult to, to analyze uh, Hinduism. Um, but there are so many um, similarities and so much point that Buddhists and Hindus have, um, have always uh, got on very well and the philosophy of the Hindus that we find in the Upanishads for instance uh, has many points of similarity with the teachings of the Buddha and the um, the Bhagavad Gita um, 
is a post-Buddhist text, and you can see uh, Buddhist, very strong Buddhist influence in, in Bhagavad Gita. Um, <clears throat> so, um, the Buddhist, Buddhism arose in a Brahmin society, and subsequently the Brahmin religion reformed itself and absorbed certain elements of uh, Buddhist tradition. Um, and over the course of time, you know, we have uh, Hinduism, where it's the, the Shivite, Hinduism, the Vishnuite, um, the different, very many different branches of Hindu tradition. Anyone? religious and the other big word is good um, and uh, you know what does it mean to be good um, people have many different ideas uh, of what it is to be good and we know for instance these days that there are young men and, and women in certain parts of the world uh, who, who feel that to be good they need to um, blow themselves up and kill many other people who um, who they don't agree with or have belonged to other religions. And they feel that being like a good Muslim, for instance, in doing that. So we have to be, be clear, what, what do we mean by goodness? And then what do we mean by being religious as well? As I say, in, uh, in most religions in the world, the emphasis is on believing things. And so um, when I became uh, a Buddhist monk, uh, one of my aunties said, I'm just so astonished because you've never been religious. And, and she went, I never, you know, believed in uh, religious teachings or Christian teachings um, in that way. So everything religious means um, believing in things or um, uh, performing certain rituals. Yes, we can say they're not um, the essence or not the, uh, the, the, um, the force leading to a good rebirth, but it's the quality of your actions of body, speech, and mind. But to determine what does that mean, the quality, or what does it mean to have good body, speech, and mind? Um, and uh, this, this is where... Uh, you know, we have to analyze and to and and to and to look at that. So, I'm saying in uh, in many religious traditions, they say that goodness is not the point. Um, for instance, if if you speak to uh, what we call like a fundamentalist Christian, they will say that if you next life if you go to heaven, there's only one thing that matters. 
unless you believe in Jesus, that he, he died for your sins. And that if someone in another country, whether it's Thailand or Bhutan, they're a very honest person, very kind, uh, very good in, in all, but all those things, they don't mean anything at all if they don't believe in Jesus. Because if they don't believe in Jesus, they can't go to heaven. Mm. So, um, it's in Buddhism that we, we say that it doesn't matter. You can believe in Jesus if you like. You can believe in Muhammad. Uh, you can believe in the man in the moon. Or you can believe in nothing at all. Um, but if you lead a, a, a good and a kind life, you are creating the causes and conditions to be reborn in a good place. So this is why I think Buddhism is like universal teaching. Um, and also we do find this in, in the Hindu tradition. So the, the religions that grew up in India do have um, this, this kind of idea more strongly. Um, but that, that idea that goodness is the, uh, rather than so-called religious uh, beliefs, that is, um, uh, I think, quite a interesting and, and fruitful a useful idea. Respected as a young girl, I have been grown up with the belief that if we do good deeds, we go to heaven, and if we do bad deeds, we go to hell. Is this true? And do hell and heaven really exist? Please. When we talk about good um, and evil or good and bad, and then we tie it to something that happens um, after we die, then we're always in the realm of belief. It's only, you can only ever you believe or you don't believe. Um, but what's more important is to see the effects of your actions and your speech and your thoughts in this life, because this is something that you can prove for yourself. Now, let me um, give an example. Let's, let's say that um, there's somebody at school who you really don't like. They're so annoying and so nasty, and maybe they bully you, or they're very cruel to you, but you just be very patient and be patient and don't say anything. Um, and then one day, finally, you have so many things going on, and suddenly you just slap their face. You just, you just can't take it anymore. But before you got to that point of slapping their face, maybe it's like months of patience, endurance. Now, after that, let's say that person carries on acting in the same way. They're very nasty and cruel, and I would say now, the likelihood that you will slap their face for a second time is much, much stronger than it was because you've done it once and now you have an example and maybe you can do it the second time is easier um, and then maybe uh, it becomes easier and easier to react violently um, to provocation. So this is the law of karma in everyday life. It means we create habits through our thoughts and our speech and our actions. Um, if you do something, or you speak in a certain way, you speak crudely, you start swearing, you start speaking um, in a nasty way, to, 
the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And if you do some good thing, the more you do it, the easier it becomes until it becomes, we say, second nature. This is where we see the law of Kama in our, our daily life. And we can prove it on that, that there, our actions have consequences. Um, and that good actions and good speech and good thoughts lift the mind, lift our life higher. And when we act and speak and think um, in nasty and, and uh, cruel ways, we, we, uh, we, we lower our life, we lower our mind. And so the, um, the law of karma, uh, I, want, I think we should look at this side of it much more than just talk about what happens uh, in the future. And it's not so, there isn't just heaven and hell, there are all different, different realms of rebirth, and the human realm um, is, is one of those. It's not just black and white, you know, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. That's a non-Buddhist, non, uh, that's a Christian or a Muslim belief. We don't um, accept that in the Buddhist tradition. And certainly eternal heaven and eternal hell um, are not part of uh, our religious and cultural traditions. Now, the, there are teachings by the Buddha about heaven and hell. Um, and I would like to give a, an analogy to how do we deal with that when it's something which is completely out of, outside our experience. We have no way of proving it. Um, so my analogy is uh, we're traveling in uh, a strange country we've never been before. And some kind person has given us a really detailed map. And so we walk along and we look to our left and we look to our right and we notice the landforms and the buildings and, and then we look at our map every now and again and we check. Um, and after a while we see every single thing that we see with our eyes is exactly accurately represented on the map. So as we walk along the road, uh, the more and more times we check the map and we find that it's accurate, then we have confidence in the map. This is what, what we can call faith. Our faith is one that's based on checking and looking do the teachings accord with our experience? Okay? So it's just like checking the map. Now let's say after a while you've been walking for some time and you open up the whole map and you look up in the top corner of the map or somewhere so far, you, you know, you don't know whether you're going to get that far. It's a long, long way away. Um, and then you see something which you've never seen in your own country. Um, let's say, um, uh, usually in Thailand I talk about you see very high mountains, but in Bhutan you see them all the time. So let's say you see a desert, sand, sand dunes for mile after mile after mile after mile, nothing but sand. And you from Bhutan, you know, you've never seen uh, a desert at all. And um, you, you think, well, that doesn't seem likely. There's nothing I've ever seen in my life which is anything like that. It doesn't make sense. 
surely not um, that's your common sense speaking but then another voice in your head says but you know this is just one map is it really likely that the area of the map that I have checked out is completely accurate and the area over there which I haven't checked out is completely inaccurate so now you think well yeah it doesn't make sense either so you have some kind of a debate in your mind and, and I think that for me then the, the wise way is to say well you know this map so far has proved such a good and accurate map that I'll just take as a working hypothesis just for the time being I will um, take the map to be completely accurate but I'm aware that I don't actually know for sure this is just my confidence in the map and the map maker um, so when we read in the Buddhist texts about the heaven realms and hell realms and hungry ghosts and animal, all these different realms of beings yes we cannot at this point we cannot prove those things but we say well the Buddha is so wise and is in all the things that the Buddha has taught us that we can put to the test so far they've all proved to be right there's nothing wrong yet so we just give the Buddha the benefit of the doubt we say well we, you're a very good map maker so I, I'll, I'll just believe you for the time being but I don't believe you 100% you know even you're such a great map maker I just 90% until I see with my own eyes so, this, so we don't have to have this absolute faith in heaven and hell realm but be aware that the Buddha did teach about these things now regarding um, rebirth there are is so many cases throughout the world of people who can remember past lives so this is a very important point I think because it's very difficult for people who believe in like you're born one time and then there's nothing so scientific materialist point of view atheist view you die and there's only chemicals and then nothing or there's the eternalist view you know you die and you either go to eternal heaven eternal hell so how can they explain deep, uh, memory of past lives very difficult um, and um, these there are cases of people who remember in great detail their past lives not only people in Buddhist countries but people who believe who are members of religions that don't believe in these things at all which is even more um, uh, incredible and I think that surely there are cases in in um, in Bhutan and there are many in Thailand and uh, I, I will give you um, my favorite example and uh, this is something that happened in Cambodia which is a country just to the east of Thailand it's also a Buddhist country but there was um, a, a woman who took her three sons to the Russian embassy in the capital of Cambodia her eldest son was about four years old and she had brought the son to the embassy because he had been insisting I am not your son these are not my brothers 
I come from Russia. I want to go home. And so she was very, this is my son, you're very confused, you can imagine. And for a long time, he was very poor to go all the way into the capital. There's a lot of money on the bus. But eventually she decided to, to go. And of course, the, the people in the embassy, they didn't know what to say. But this child was able to give an address and telephone number and things like this to uh, enable them to make some inquiries. And the Russian embassy sent a fax to Moscow and they followed this up and they found that in the house, uh, the address that this little boy from the countryside in Cambodia gave them, uh, the family had a son who had been a soldier and he had been sent to Cambodia and he had been driving a jeep with two other soldiers, his friends, and the jeep had hit a mine and all three soldiers died. And um, this uh, took place quite close by to this village where this mother and her three sons came from. So this is the evidence which is clear, it's not in any doubt. So what is the explanation? So Buddhist explanation is that these three soldiers were reborn as the three sons of this woman. Now that's, a, that's not a proof, that's an explanation. Okay? But you say, if you um, say, I don't believe in rebirth, that's, that's a load of rubbish, it's not true, then the challenge is, how else can you explain what happened? How else can you explain a, a boy uh, in a village in Cambodia who knows Russian, who speaks Russian words and, ha and knows a, an address and a telephone number and, and so on and so forth? I think that the Buddhist explanation is the most rational, rational and most plausible explanation for the facts. And this is just one out of many, many, many cases. Um, and, and so, uh, I would say that the teaching of rebirth um, is not a matter of faith alone. That there is some strong evidence um, supporting it. I, I stress again, this is not absolute proof, but it's strong supporting evidence that we need to take into account. Okay, we'll have one more question and then we'll have the short meditation period to, to end uh, our meeting this afternoon. My question is that, uh, uh, <laughs> my question is that, can can an idol made by a man be a holy? Can sorry. Be a holy. My question is that, can an idol made by a man be a holy? Uh, sorry, I, I don't understand. <laughs> He means to say that a statue ma ma made by a man can become holy. Oh, can can a statue become can become holy? Um, that that's a very good question, and uh, 
the difficult one to um, to answer in that if um, let, let me um, start off with something else if you have a like a, a space a room or like an altar room or a meditation room and you only use that for that one purpose say you have a room you only meditate and you and other people use this room only for meditation for a long time then I think anybody who walks into that room you feel this is a very special kind of atmosphere very there's some and it's hard to explain like in scientific terms what what is it but somehow you just feel peaceful when you go into that space and I think that um, and I can't explain this but with um, some uh, relics and uh, not relics so, uh, so much as um, statues and holy places what we call holy places because of the devotion of so many people thousands and thousands of people sometimes over hundreds and hundreds of years that there is a an atmosphere around those places that you can you can feel a sensitive person can can feel what it actually is is difficult to say um, there are also uh, there are the uh, the devas the gods um, these are also beings that are being reborn but people who uh, have uh, sent it to the heaven realms and the devas and some of them um, they uh, they dwell in these kinds of places there are devas there are deities who dwell in trees tree dwelling deities and the deities are drawn towards holy places and so um, and some people who have the developed the meditation practice to a very high level it's like they have an extra sense and they can see these devas so if you have developed the meditation to quite a high level then um, you can see it's like just light like just um, like areas of light that in the trees and in around and if someone is um, very highly developed they can actually see the devas they can see these heavenly beings um, but this is uh, it's like you have to have a very 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 refined instrument just like to see the faraway galaxies you need a hugely powered uh, telescope and and very few people do have this gift um, but this is the reason why certain places do have such such a powerful feeling one is a result of all the devotion over many many years from many many people but also the heavenly beings who guard and protect those places okay so may I ask a question I understand now in all the schools in Bhutan you have to have a uh, daily meditation is that correct yes. and what is the technique what do you do when you meditate that's not a joke it's a serious question uh, hmm? what do you meditate on what do you think about hmm?
if you're just um, closing your eyes and thinking about what's for lunch, that's not meditation. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to um, teach a very simple uh, meditation technique um, which is based upon the um, awareness of the breath. Now, one of the reasons why people get um, bored or discouraged with meditation is because it's very hard to see progress and you think, I'm just wasting my time, nothing's happening. So this meditation is very good for beginners and it's one in which you can measure your progress and you can see, oh yes, I, I'm getting better at this so that will give you some um, interest. Now what you do is that um, when you start to meditate, and meditating always try to keep a, a straight back, that's quite important not rigid, but you're just naturally straight um, and close your eyes and and then just bring your attention uh, first of all, just relax. Just take a two or three deep breaths. And then as you breathe out, just imagine all the anxieties and the worries and the pain just leaving your bodies, just going all out of you with the out-breath. And as you in-breath, just feel light and peace and calm, just coming all into your, your body and your mind. So this is just a first preparation. It's like a cleansing. Just use your imagination that your body is just filling, as you breathe in, your body is filling up with calm and peace and brightness, happiness. And as you breathe out, just let go of all the suffering and the stress and the pain. So after those deep breaths, now we're going to be aware just of the normal breath. Don't try to do anything to your breath, but try to uh, find the spot, one single spot, where you can feel the breath most clearly. So for most people, it's around the nose. It might be inside your nose, or at the tip of your nose, or just above your lip. doesn't matter, but that's your, that's your workplace. That's where you're going to establish your attention, on the feeling, on the sensation of the breath as it comes in, as it goes out of your body. Now, the, the technique that we're going to use to help us um, to be awake and aware of the breath is to count the breaths. And the way we're going to count the breaths is uh, you count on the in-breath, one, and on the out-breath, one, and then in-breath, two, out-breath two, in-breath three, out-breath three, in-breath four, out-breath four, in-breath five, out-breath five. And when you reach five, if you've reached it without forgetting what you're doing, then you start again and you count one, one, two, two, three, three. But this time you count to six. And so when you get to six, six, you start again, and you count one, one, two, two, three, three, all the way to seven, seven. And then you start again, you count one, one, all the way to eight, eight. Start again, count one, one, two, 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 nine, nine. 
And finally, you count from 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3 to 10, 10. So that's your first goal. That's your challenge. Can you um, count 1 to 5, 1 to 6, 1 to 7, 1 to 8, 1 to 9, and then 1 to 10 without getting um, distracted or forgetting what you're doing? Now, if you do lose it and you forget, then you have to start all over again. Go back to 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3, 4, 4, 5, 5. And so it's, it's more difficult than you might think, but it gives you um, something to aim at, just a, a small um, challenge for you to see whether you can do one whole cycle without getting distracted. And if you can do one cycle, then you can try to increase to two cycles or three cycles. Now, if you do get um, lost and start thinking about something else, then never mind, that's completely normal. So don't make a, you know, a fuss about it. Don't worry about it. Simply re-establish your attention. Start again, very patiently, but very firmly. <laughs> 